Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Well, we are continuing and finishing our series this morning on divine design. And since we now have uh, Thanksgiving in our rearview mirror, after this Sunday, we will turn our attention toward Christmas. But this morning, we finished design, divine design, and I've said multiple times that this has certainly not uh, been an exhaustive series. That is, there is much more we could talk about, about who God says we are once we are in Christ. And again, I would encourage you to do a Google search of something like, who does the Bible say I am, or something like that. And then to track down the various verses and images that the Bible gives us as to who we are in Christ. The verses I have selected for our time this morning are 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And in many ways, these two verses could be a summary of all we've talked about. In fact, we could have started with these verses and simply used them as a jumping off point for this entire series, but instead, I've chosen to use them at the end as sort of a summary while at the same time also being a challenge. Now, if you were brought up in a Southern Baptist church, you are familiar with a program called RAs. Now, GAs was the more familiar program. It stood for Girls in Action. But RAs was the boys' counterpart, and it stood for Royal Ambassadors. And in fact, that's the title of my sermon this morning, Royal Ambassadors. But that program was traditionally in Southern Baptist life, a Wednesday night program for boys in first through sixth grade, and the emphasis was on missions. These were both mission organizations, GAs and RAs, and were the standard in our denomination until Awana and other programs came along, and therefore they were no longer as popular. They do still exist, but not in as many churches as they once did. All that to say, my son Jacob was in RAs in our last church, and he was in RAs under the leadership of one of the deacons of our church, a man by the name of Bill Napier. Bill Napier also happened to be, for a time, the head coach of the local high school. He went on to coach elsewhere. If that name sounds familiar to you, it is because his son, Billy Napier, is the current head coach of the Florida Gators. But Bill Napier was a very faithful member of our church, even during the busy season of football, and he had three sons, all of whom played football and all of whom now coach football. But Bill would gather the boys on Wednesday nights, and lead them through the mission lesson. But then when we got home, we would sometimes ask Jacob what what he learned in RAs that night. And his answer was often very strange. He would say to us something like, well, the coach says I'm fast. Or the coach says I have good hands. You see, it turns out that Bill Napier was doing the missions lesson on Wednesday night, probably for 10 or 15 minutes, and then if the weather was good, he was taking the boys outside for a sort of skills camp in football. He was looking around to see who might be coming up through the ranks that could one day help him in his high school football program. 
Well, I am no football coach, nor is this going to be a skills camp, but I do want to suggest to you that you ought to become part of RAs. No, I'm not talking about restarting the Wednesday night program. I am not talking about the fact that this might just apply to boys or men. I'm certainly not talking about RAs in the sense of college where we had resident assistants in our dorms whom we tried to avoid on a regular basis. Instead, I'm going to state this morning what the Bible does, and that is that every believer is an RA. You are, as part of your identity in Christ, a royal ambassador. And we are going to see this morning what that means for our lives. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and we'll see what we are to do as a result. Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're going to start this morning by talking about the identity of believers. Again, this has basically been our whole focus throughout this series. And we've done this because we are very good at listening to what other people say we are and getting our image or identity from that. We are even very good at listening to what we say we are, are whether that be based on our strengths or our weaknesses, all of which fluctuate from time to time. But we want to get our minds straight as to who we are, based not on others nor on ourselves, but instead on what God says we are in a world that is confused about identity so that we can truthfully say who we are in Christ. Now, under this identity, I'm going to mention four things, all of which will come from verse 9. And you'll see in just a moment that there will be absolutely no creativity on my part when it comes to these four points. But before we get there, let me say two things in general before we look at these four aspects of identity. First of all, I want you to understand that all four of these are going to be plural rather than individual. These are corporate identities. These are aspects of who we are together as the people of God. And we need to be reminded of that in a, in a generation and in a world that is so individualistic. Peter is writing this letter, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, he is writing this letter to exiles, that is believers who have been scattered throughout various regions. So even though we tend to read the word you in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, we tend to read that singularly, that he's talking about us individually. But I want you to see that he is not writing to individuals per se. He is talking about a collective group of people, which means once again that believers must be involved in community together. When we are redeemed by the Redeemer, we are united with others who are also redeemed such that no believer is complete in isolation from all other believers because we are God's people together, not God's person individually. 
Secondly, Peter is employing terminology here from the Old Testament. These are terms and phrases that were spoken of Israel or the Jews. And yet he is applying these terms to us as we move forward to the New Testament. He is taking Old Testament images and terminology and he is applying it to us as God's people. Now you may have heard the Uh, just a week or two ago that on the Jeopardy Tournament of Champions, they had a Bible question. And the question was, of all of Paul's letters, which one has the most quotations? And the answer on Jeopardy was Hebrews, which is not the right answer because we do not know for certain, and there are quite a bit of doubts as to whether Paul actually wrote Hebrews. But what we're going to see in this text is there are a lot of quotations, maybe not direct quotations, but there are a lot of references to the Old Testament here, and we are going to highlight some of them. So four things when it comes to our identity. First of all, you, we, are a chosen race. Now we of course hear a lot these days about race and race relations, and how we can better minimize the divisions that exist among us and maximize the unity that should be among us, I was surprised to discover that there are actually only three or four races in the world. It obviously depends upon who's making the categories, and there are some who go to five or even seven, and there are others who subdivide into multiple, even dozens of groups, but most believe that there are basically only three to four races in all of the world. Sociologically speaking, a race is defined as a group of people with certain common inherited features that distinguish that group from other people. Now, we are all part of the human species but we are not all part of the same race. In some sense, we share features with all of the other species, but there are some features that designate one race from another and divide us. And obviously these features are physical and external. But Peter, of course, is not talking about physical or external uh, issues. He is talking about a spiritual race. We are the people of God, as verse 10 makes very clear. And I would rather repeat this rather than be misunderstood. When I say we are the people of God, I am referring to believers. We've said throughout this series that the vast majority of what we are talking about is true only for those who are in Christ. So I am not saying that all people everywhere are the people of God, but I am saying every believer combines to make up a chosen race that is the people of God. Now, I also want to highlight that first word, the word chosen. I don't want to just focus on the word race. I want to look at that word chosen. Now, I know some people bristle at this and get all worked up, and they immediately begin to question and say, what about free will or what about human decisions? But we need to hold these truths together, maybe even in tension, without sacrificing one for the other. It's interesting to me that we have no problem calling the Israelites God's chosen people because we know that's exactly what the Old Testament calls them. 
God even says to them, I didn't choose you because you were more in number. You weren't the greatest nation out there. I didn't choose you because you were mightier or stronger. I didn't choose you because you were more noble. God says, I simply chose you because that's what I wanted to do. I chose to bestow my mercy upon you because as God, I have a right to do that. So without arguing this theological hot button, I want to say the same thing to us. We are God's chosen race. We have emphasized throughout this series that God is the one working, and that is equally true today. We are who we are because God has chosen us, and as a result, we are united together as a race. Regardless of our external differences, regardless of any other differences, we are united together as God's chosen race. Secondly, he says, we are royal priests. Now, both of those words might be unfamiliar to you. Not unfamiliar in the sense that you've never seen them or nor do you understand them, but unfamiliar in the sense that you don't often apply them to yourself. The royal part is a function of who we are as an inheritance. It is in whose kingdom we now reside. You remember our parable series sometimes back? where we talked repeatedly about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And we've talked in this series about the fact that we've been adopted into that kingdom. That's what makes us royalty. The king is on the throne and we are his royal court. The priest is the other word here, and that's an Old Testament term. It is still used by some denominations today, of course, but not usually by Baptist. But as you can see here, rightly understood, There is nothing wrong with applying it to us. And not just in the sense of someone who works in the church or leads worship services. An Old Testament priest was a go-between. A man who stood before God on behalf of the people and a man who then communicated to the people on behalf of God. We know that Hebrews makes the compelling case that Jesus is the great high priest. All other priests were a foreshadowing of the one great priest who was to come, and Jesus is that great high priest. And again, we've even talked in our life groups about the fact that Jesus, as our high priest, is ever living to make intercession for us. And while we can probably follow all of that logic and not argue with it, You might ask, how do you get to the point then that we are priests? How can you say that we are royal priests? Well, Baptists have a doctrine that we call the priesthood of all believers, which comes from this very idea that we are talking about. The idea is that we no longer need a special class of people as a go-between between us and God. We don't need a human priest to intercede on our behalf because we have the great high priest who has done that for us, reconciling us to God so that now all of us through Christ can have a relationship with God and have direct access to him, which again is why we don't use the word priests when it comes to ministers in the church. But there is nothing wrong with using the word priest when it comes to every member of the family. There's nothing wrong with calling us royal priests and therefore a royal priesthood. The third thing is that we are a holy nation. I know you saw that one coming by now because you can look at the verse and you can see that what I said earlier is exactly true. I'm not being creative at all. I'm taking these subpoints directly from verse 9. So we are a holy nation. 
Now, a nation is a little bit different from a race. A nation is usually defined as a territory led by a specific government. So it is generally a geographic area like our nation and hundreds of other nations around the world. But the word is also used to describe a group of people who share a history, a culture, or a language without actually having necessarily a specific territory. We use that word nation all the time. It's become very popular in sports. I don't really like it, but it's used and every team does it. And so you hear now things about the Vol Nation, referring to everybody that makes up fans when it comes to the Tennessee Volunteers. And so across the board, no matter what else they have in common or whatever differences they might have, they are collectively called the Vol Nation. So you ask, what is it that we share in common that makes us a nation? And it is not sports affiliation. You say, well, the Sunday school answer is Jesus, right? If you don't know the answer in Sunday school, just say Jesus. More likely than not, it is going to be correct. And it would be correct and is correct at this point as well, but it is not exactly what Peter says. And so while that is true, Jesus is the thing that binds us together as a nation, what does Peter say? Peter instead uses the word holy. If he wanted to just say it's through Jesus, he could have said we're a spiritual nation or we're a Christian nation. But instead, he says, we are a holy nation. So what does he mean by that? Well, you have your Bibles open. Flip back to chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. 1 Peter 1, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The second half there is a quote from the Old Testament book of Leviticus. And the first half of that is a command for us to follow on the basis of that Old Testament statement. Because God is holy, we are to be holy. Now, I've mentioned before that when it comes to holiness, there are two aspects. There is what we call a positional holiness, and there is what we call a practical holiness. A positional holiness means that God declares us to be holy. It's in essence what the word set apart means. We have been set apart by God as his holy people. That's a positional holiness. We've been declared to be that. But generally speaking, when we think of the word holy, we think of it on a more practical level. That is, we think about holiness as lives characterized by that word holy or holiness. And because of that, most of us would admit that we're not as holy as we ought to be. Maybe some of us would say that we're not holy at all. But we do understand that we are to strive for holiness on the basis of the holiness of God. So this then, Peter says, is the essence of our shared culture and language. This is what makes us a nation. We have a holy God who is perfect in all his holiness, to whom every believer belongs. He has declared us to be holy because we are in Jesus Christ, and therefore now he commands us to live lives of holiness. That is who we are. We are a nation and yet that nation is characterized by holiness. Well, the fourth aspect of our identity, we are a prized possession. This is the only one that I've had to sort of 
come together with some of the phrases here, some of the phrases in verse 9 and, and all of verse 10. And so this is the only one that doesn't pull exactly from this verse. But multiple times here, we are referred to as God's people. And we know from previous studies in this series that we are God's people because he purchased us. And that's part of the reason I get the word possession there. I get the word prized from this as well because God has valued us enough to redeem us through his son. And I also see this with the phrase his own possession. Again, we belong to him, which speaks of the value that he places on us by choosing us, as we talked about earlier, to be part of his family. Now, I admitted at the outset that most of this is a mere summary, that these verses could have been used for the entire series. And if I had to summarize everything we've talked about, if you were to ask me after the service, can you give me two words? that would summarize divine design. And I would say to you, those two words are God's people. We belong to him. Every believer is part of the family of God and we belong to God. We who were once strangers and aliens and exiles or foreigners, all words used in the Bible to speak of those who do not know Christ, have now become part of the family such that we are God's people, his prized possession. Verse 10 is a reference to the book of Hosea. I told you earlier that there are multiple Old Testament references here, and all of verse 10 is a reference to the Old Testament book of Hosea. You might not notice that at first glance when you read that, and I would always encourage you to look at the cross-references and footnotes in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible that has those, get one, because those are helpful resources, so you can see what exactly is going on there. The book of Hosea is one of the minor prophets it's the first of the 12 minor prophets, not minor in the sense that their message doesn't matter, but minor in the sense that their books are small. And so you can find Hosea right after Daniel, the last of the major prophets in the Old Testament. Hosea's name means salvation. And in him, we see a picture of Christ. Hosea is a living portrait of Jesus. He is commanded by God to go and marry a woman, a woman by the name of Gomer, who has not the greatest reputation in the community. And that's an understatement. Gomer is not the kind of woman that a young man would bring home to meet his parents. And yet Hosea, the prophet of God, is told to go and marry her, which in fact he does. And while he is going to be a picture of Christ, his wife, Gomer, is going to be a picture of the unfaithfulness of Israel. Together they have three children whose names were significant. The first child is named Jezreel because God said he was going to scatter Israel as a punishment for their sin. And yet at the same time, as is so often the case in the Old Testament, when God scatters, there's also a promise that he's going to regather in the future. And so he says, I'm going to scatter you as punishment for your sin, but I'm going to sow you again in the land in the future. And so we see repeatedly that God punishes and then God redeems a remnant. The second child born to Hosea and Gomer is a child by the name of Lo-Ruhamah, which means no pity or no mercy. God was going to show no mercy to Israel, but instead was going to come in judgment. The third child born to this couple, they were told to name lo 
ami, which means not my people. God was going to disown Israel and no longer claim to be their God. Now, can you imagine hearing and seeing Hosea proclaim this message that God was going to judge and disown them? The very people that prided themselves on their relationship with God. I mean, you talk about identity. These were a people whose identity was based on their relationship with God. And now God is saying to them, I'm not going to show mercy and you are no longer my people. I'm sure they didn't believe what Hosea had to say. And I'm sure they just chalked it up as yet another prophet who didn't know what he was talking about. And yet, as we fast forward to our text and to our lives, Peter is saying, we are the remnant. We are the fulfillment. You who once were shown no mercy have now been shown mercy. You who once were not my people are now my people. And Paul uses these verses to say the same thing in Romans chapter 9. We are now the people of God, though at one time we were not. We are now the recipients of divine mercy when at one point we were under the judgment of God. And I know Thanksgiving is over with, but that's got to make us thankful, right? That we've been shown mercy and we are the people of God. You, we have value, not because of our earning potential or our power or our influence, We have value because we are the prized possession of a merciful God, and as we saw last week, that will never change. Now, as wonderful as all of that is, you might be scratching your head and wondering how all of this ties into the title. As of yet, I've said nothing about being royal ambassadors, and frankly, I don't have a lot of time left, but I'm about to change all of that, not extending the time, but talking about us being royal ambassadors. We are to be an influencer in our society. We are to influence others, and therefore, I want to talk secondly about the influence of believers. Now, I know a lot of people think that a sermon is not complete without some sort of easy-to-understand and preferably easy-to-follow action steps. I mean, that's the application part of the sermon. Tell me three things that I can do this week to implement what you've talked about that's going to help me make progress in whatever the subject is that you are dealing with. And I also realize that such steps have been lacking in this entire series. Most of what we've been talking about is taking place in the mind that is coming to grips with who we are in Christ. But on the one hand, I want you to understand that the mind and contemplating the things of God is an action step. That is application. So if you're one of those who think you always need some three action steps, contemplation of what you heard is an action step and a very important one. But for those of you who always want some, something more, some kind of action step, that's what we're going to talk about now. We are to thank God and rejoice in our status and identity with him. We are to rest in who we are knowing that that will never be lost. But there is an important action step to this entire series, and we find that in the second half of verse 9. Now, we've already talked about the royalty portion, so now we see that we are ambassadors. We are to proclaim the one who has redeemed us. 
We are not to sit silently by as others struggle through life, not understanding that we have the answers to the very things that they are struggling with, and that we possess the very thing they need, whether they understand that or not, God has chosen to use us to communicate himself. Now, the truth of the matter is we willingly share those things that are important to us. You don't have to coax a golfer into sharing his story about his greatest round or the hole-in-one he got. You don't have to pry that out of him. He's going to tell it. You don't have to pry out of a hunter or a fisherman the story about the big buck that he killed or the largemouth bass that set records in his own mind. They're going to tell those things. You certainly don't have to pry out of a grandparent them talking about their grandkids. And not only talking about them, but showing pictures. They're going to brag about their grandkids because of the pride they have in them. Those are all just natural. And there are countless other examples that would go likewise. Likewise, when we think about all that we've talked about in this brief series, realizing that God has created us and redeemed us, and we are who we are in Christ, and we've gotten just a little bit of a glimpse of how great this reality is, it should be natural for us to want to share these truths with others who, again, may or may not know how desperately they need them. Look at the wording here in this verse. We are to proclaim the excellencies of the God who saved us. This is not just average news that we need to casually share if we happen to get an opportunity. This is breaking news of the most exciting kind. We are talking about the excellencies of God's salvation. We are so inundated with news these days, much of it claiming to be breaking and urgent that perhaps we've lost the sense of urgency. We've grown immune to the news because it's always in front of us, and by the way, most of it is negative and depressing. So while it might be on and on our televisions in the background or it might be scrolling on our computer screen, we often just ignore it and don't pay much attention to it. And while I understand that when it comes to world news, we must not allow ourselves to become apathetic nor immune to the good news of salvation. That is what Christmas is all about. God is breaking into the world in that first Christmas in order to bring salvation the angelic announcement was Jesus will save his people from their sins. That's what we're going to be celebrating for the next month, which also means we have a greater opportunity over the next few weeks to proclaim the excellencies of the one who saved us because people at this time of year are a little bit more open to hearing exactly what it is that we are celebrating. And we are celebrating the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into light. And not just light. There's another superlative there, right? Not just the excellencies, but he's called us into his marvelous light. We who were once in utter darkness now reside in the light of God's presence. Why would anyone knowingly keep this to themselves? Why would we need someone to preach a sermon, to motivate or encourage us to share such good news? And yet the reality is that most all of us certainly myself included, struggle with this very thing. We struggle to regularly or even occasionally share our faith. 
we make all kinds of excuses, and I'm not going to go into those excuses because we don't have the time, and frankly, we all know that they are just excuses. But maybe the real reason boils down to the exact same thing we talked about last week. Remember last week I said that many people struggle with eternal security, and I think the ultimate reason they struggle with eternal security is because they've never fully grasped, or at least even partly grasped, the nature of true salvation. And perhaps that's true in this case as well. Dare I say that maybe we don't see our salvation as that miraculous or marvelous? Maybe we pay lip service to God being excellent and his salvation being of immense value, and yet our silence tells another story. A story that says other things in life are frankly more important. Now, I know you're not going to admit that. I don't expect anybody to admit that. But you remember what we tell our kids sometimes? Actions speak louder than words. And maybe it's the case that our actions, or in this case, our lack of action as ambassadors is speaking loudly about the lack of value we place on our salvation from a God who's so gracious and merciful. There is a story in the Old Testament. It's in 2 Kings, if you want to look it up later, of a man by the name of Ben-Hadad, who is the king of Syria, and he is besieging Samaria. Now, besieging was a military technique where they would surround the city, cutting the city off from its resources, and then they would just wait. They would wait for the food supply and water supply to run out, and therefore the people would be weak and desperate. And the strategy was successful in this case, and the famine was severe. Rising prices and short supplies were far more problematic in Samaria than what we are dealing with today. And finally, the prophet Elisha comes along and he predicts that all of this is going to change on the next day. Elisha says, come tomorrow, prices are coming way down and you can get whatever you want to get. And of course, most people didn't believe the Lord's prophet once again. The story continues in 2 Kings chapter 7 with four men who are sitting at the city gate. These four men are lepers. That's why they're sitting at the city gate. They are not allowed into the city. But they, like the rest of the city, are famished. They are dying from famine. And so they began to reason among themselves. And they say, well, if we go into the city, we're going to die. If we sit here, we're going to die. Why don't we take our chances and go out to the army of Syria? That's the only real chance we have to live. And so they do that. They go out to the army of Syria and find that the army of Syria is gone. They have left And in leaving, they have abandoned everything. And so what do these four men do? They begin enjoying the fruits that they've discovered. They eat and they drink. They plunder some of the valuables that they wanted. But then they say this. They say, this day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. After an initial selfish reaction that we could all understand, they begin to say, there are people dying in that city over there. And we have the answer to what they need. And if we remain silent, their blood is going to be on our hands. Isn't it time we realize the same thing? That we are royal ambassadors who have exceedingly great news that must be shared, 
Otherwise, people will die. And that is true not only of the two we've already had on this platform who are doing it in Central Asia. That is to be true of all of this, all of us. You are by divine design created in the image of God, recreated in the image of Christ, and now you have a mission. You have an action plan, and that is you are to be royal ambassadors sharing the message of faith. I want to close with the theme verse from our ace, and it applies to all of us. If you are here this morning and you're not a believer, it applies to you in the fact that you are urged to follow Christ and become a believer. If you're here this morning and you are already a believer, it applies to you in the sense that you are to proclaim that message. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Father, we thank you this morning that you have created and redeemed us And now you've seen fit to use us in proclaiming your message of salvation. Help us to be royal ambassadors. And I even said that wrong. It's not something we need to be. It is who we are. We are royal ambassadors. So help us to go and tell. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.